How is everybody doing today? <clears throat> Feeling still just a bit out of sorts. Just woke up from a nap. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Who does that? No. Well, uh, no, uh, Corinne, uh, Corinne has a migraine. And uh, so she was laying in bed and she was like, you look tired. Lay down, and, and I was tired, so thus I laid down. And an hour and a half had never gone by so fast. And uh, so she woke me up a couple of minutes before church was going to start tonight. And she was like, yeah, you're, uh, you're teaching and stuff. You should probably go. So, <laughs> so I splashed some water on my face and ran out the door. Um, all that to say is this might be a, a bit of a weird study. So uh, I've never done one so fast after waking up. <laughs> Stuff might get all distorted and strange. <clears throat> so uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Uh, once again for our time together, what a blessing it is to be here with my brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, what a great encouragement they are, you know, to uh, to my life and my wife's life, and I just thank you for them. I ask, Lord, that that you touch all of us tonight, move in our midst, minister to our hearts, and I'll give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Judges chapter 3. We're moving right along. We even began chapter 3 last week, so I mean, look at that. We're, uh, we're doing great here. Um, so we're going to start on verse 7. Uh, but, but last week we, we finished the prologue to the book, uh, where that last great generation passed away and this second generation had, had come up and they were a different lot altogether. They had settled in the land, accepted the territory of, uh, the, the enemies in the land and began to marry or intermarry with them and worship their gods and, and they're, uh, they're suffering the consequences. But, uh, this week, we're going to see the grace of God as he raises up these men to deliver his people. And he's always faithful to, to his people. And this is, this, is a, this is a great week to be in the book of Judges. It's one of my favorite chapters of the book of Judges. So, so I'm, uh, I'm sleepy, but nonetheless excited. And uh, so uh, let's begin. Verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So they forgot chapter 3, verse 7. An interesting, did I not say that before? Okay, <laughs> I heard it, thank you. I didn't know what it was referring to. Uh, they forgot, an interesting word to consider as a picture of what it means to drift away from the Lord. And they just forgot the Lord, and they began to, to marry and settle in and, and, and accept the enemy in their territory, and, and God just became to them uh, somewhat of a distant memory. His, his, his face had faded in their sight, and, and they just simply forgot the Lord. What it was to walk with the Lord, what it felt like to talk to the Lord, what it, what it was all about to be in the presence of the Lord. So they just they forgot the Lord. And sometimes we find ourselves there. Right, and when our stories all seem to be in the past, and and our relationship with the Lord is all in the past, and and in a sense we've lost something, we've forgotten something, we've drifted away from something, and something is missing in our lives and in our Christianity, and we remember when, and this is where Israel is today. They've forgotten the Lord. They had a I remember when relationship with the Lord, 
And certainly that's clear scripturally, and that's one interpretation of the verse if you, if you take the, the, the word forgot and consider it carefully. But I think that that's a passive interpretation of the text. And if you consider the Hebrew and you look up the word forgotten in another translation, it would say that they ignored the Lord. And certainly there's a, a passive phrasing of the text, and maybe they had just forgotten the Lord. Maybe it was just something that they just drifted away from the Lord. Or maybe, and it could be possibly, that it was much more active than that. It was much more calculating than that, that they were simply ignoring the Lord. And there was a constant nagging in their heart and soul day and night that was calling them to step away from their sin, that was calling them to to flee it, to abandon it, to give it up. And constantly they were ignoring the voice of the Lord that was pleading with their heart and making them weary. It might have been enough for them to say, well, well, I'm in the land. I'm in the promised land. And then, then that's fine for me. But they forgot the one that had given them the promise of the land. They were ignoring the voice of the Lord, accepting the boundaries of the world. Certainly Israel had forgotten the Lord. Maybe it's as bad as they were ignoring the Lord. But nonetheless, in verse 8, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishatham, king of Aram, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, a Thaniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, or, yeah, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishatham, king of Aram, into the hands of Athaniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Athaniel, son of Canaz, died. And this begins one of my favorite judges, certainly one that I identify with most easily. It's, it's Athaniel, uh, the, the nephew of Caleb. And, and to a degree, he's a faceless judge. And you could probably admit it, if you were to be honest, and be like, I've never heard anything about Nathaniel, and who cares about Nathaniel? People don't preach great sermons on Nathaniel, do they? I've never heard one. Who's heard one? He's a faceless judge. There's not a lot of detail about him. All we know is that very simply, the Spirit of God came upon him, and God got the glory for him. And from him, we learn this wonderful lesson that God is not looking for a powerful personality, but simply a willing heart. And with that, he can do great things. He can be used in a great and powerful way in your time and place. And I remember when I was in, in high school at my old church, the church that, uh, that Tony came from and Preston came from, three, the, the three of us together, men of, men of great faith and glory bearded men in the midst tonight. Um, that's where the glory comes from, the beards. Um, but uh, but uh, I remember when we, were, when we were back there at that church, and, uh, and I was just, you know, loving the Lord, serving the Lord, and, and helping out in youth group, and, and one night, uh, a man pulled me aside into the kitchen, and, uh, and maybe Tony was even present. It was his uncle that, that, that pulled me aside, and, and he had uh, a great impact uh, upon my life as a as a mentor 
in one period. And, and he pulled me aside into the kitchen and he says, you know, have, have you ever considered being a youth pastor? And, and I just remember looking at him and saying, no, no, why, me? Why? I mean, I'm not, I'm not that type of guy. Why? No. I guess is I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not like Matt. And, and, and Matt was my youth pastor at the time. And, and a, a few of you know Matt. And, and he has a powerful personality. There's something about him that, that, that just brings excitement and illumination to a, to a room. And I'm not like that. I, I'm, I'm like Nathaniel. I'm, I'm the faceless guy in the room. I like to blend in in the room. And, and I don't have that type of personality. And, and if you asked me two years ago, it may be a same, the same question or a similar question. I would say, no, I'm not like Eric. And many of you know Eric. If you ask me the, the question today, I would probably say, no, I'm not like Sam. You know, I'm not that type of guy. I don't, I don't, I'm, I can't do what they do. But I remember very distinctly him looking at me and rebuking me and saying to me, Matt, of course you're not like Matt. But nobody ever asked you to be like Matt. Matt's Matt and you're you and, and it's not about the person and their personality. It's about the ability of the Spirit of God to fall upon anybody. And that's why I love Othaniel, because he is the anybody of Scripture. And, and it's, just, it's, it's just very simple to, to see that in him, and it's a great lesson to pull from him that anybody can be used for God's glory. The Spirit came upon him, equipped him, and empowered him to deliver his people from Kushan Rishatham, this terribly uh, awful word to pronounce uh, that, that just that does awful things to my tongue every time I read it. Kushan Rishatham. Uh, in Hebrew, the word means double darkness. And, and, and what a what a wonderful picture of the time and space that this man brought to, to the nation of Israel. You know, double darkness comes in. It wasn't just a dark period in Israel's history. What's darker than dark? I don't know. Double darkness, I guess. You know, and this guy comes in and they're like, it's doubly dark. And God says, I'm going to send in my guy. He doesn't send in a name like Caleb, his uncle. He doesn't bring in the big guns like Billy Graham or Greg Laurie. He just sends in an any man to dispel the double darkness of the land. A man just like Stephen in the New Testament. Not someone of pomp and privilege, not someone that we know and are familiar with, just a simple man came in, shined the light of the Lord and brought a nation rest during his lifetime. But in verse 12, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in one verse, we see a nation go from rest and victory to defeat and oppression. 
And it's because of this pattern that David Guzik has said about this book that you learn two lessons from the book of Judges. And it's worth noting down. The first lesson is that no victory lasts forever. And the second lesson is that every victory needs to be maintained. No victory lasts forever and every victory needs to be maintained. Even in the promised land of your Christianity, there's going to be a battle daily. And tonight might be a great night for you. You might leave this place, uh, just the, the spirit upon you, the, the glory of the Lord shining through you. But tomorrow will be a new day and a new battle. And last night's victory will be ended by tomorrow morning's alarm clock. And that pierce, shrill beeping that bores a hole into your soul in the morning <laughs> will be assigned to you that no victory lasts forever and that every victory needs to be maintained. And if you don't maintain those victories, you'll find yourself under the oppression of the enemy. It's, it's, it's true for, for us, and it was true for the nation of Israel, and it can happen in one day for us, and it can happen in one verse for the nation of Israel. But continuing through the verse, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is, which is Jericho. And I gotta say, this begins, and maybe this'll, this'll be telling of my personality, but this begins one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. And one that maybe isn't very commonly known, but hopefully, hopefully after tonight, it'll be one of your favorite stories too. It's actually the story that sparked my interest in the entire book. Verse 12 introduces to us this character of Eglon, king of Moab, and his name means little lamb or calf, which is interesting and ironic to me because he's, he becomes the only person to be, to ever be described in the Bible as a very fat man. So I mean, his name is Little Calf, and you think of this adorable little guy, and then you find out that he's huge and fat and, and just an enormous character. Ancient tradition records that his waist was 480 inches, or 40 feet roundabout. Now, that's just, tra just tradition. It's not a biblical fact, but you get the idea. This guy was known for his girth. I mean, and, and, and you record the traditions of a king, and they're not writing down his great accomplishments, the kingdoms that he's laid waste to. They're writing down how fat this guy was in their traditions. They're like, this guy was enormous. And, and we record our own traditions, and, and the best I could find uh, was that the fattest person we have on record, and, and she wasn't weighed at her peak, which is disappointing to me, that her name was Carl, or Carol Yagner, and, and she was supposedly... 1,600 pounds at her peak. It took 20 paramedics to extract her from her house. And, 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 but when they got her out of her house, they measured her waist roundabout and it was only 20 feet. She was a petite little thing. 
I mean, she was half. She was half of Eglon. Eglon was 40 feet roundabout. I mean, here is a very fat man. You can see the scripture is very accurate in its description of him that we'll see in verse 17. So the fat fella gets together with his two friends, the Ammonites and the Amalekites. The Ammonites and the Amalekites. And it's not a tangent, I promise you, to go in and consider the background and the origin of these two uh, these two nations. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to consider the three of them collectively and these two specifically. So turn to Genesis chapter 19. As we consider uh, these three nations representing or, or symbolizing carnality at its worst. And Sodom and Gomorrah are judged because of their sin. They were sick and depraved and rebellion to God. And Lot and his family are spared. You know the story. They're told to flee. Um, and, and that wrath would be poured out upon these people. And, and then God says to them, don't look back. Don't turn back. You know, both literally and figuratively. I want you to just run away from these people. Just just, just leave these people. And you know the story. Lot's wife turns back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. And, and Lot and his two daughters escape to the cave of Zoar. And what really follows is, is has got to be just the most disturbing story in all of Scripture. Where these two uh, self-centered girls uh, get together with their father in this cave. And, and because they thought that the world revolved around them and God just destroyed their world. Well, it's up to us to repopulate the world. And so they devised this scheme whereby they would get their father drunk and, uh, and, and, and essentially rape him. Uh, while he's in his drunken state. And you can read it for yourself, uh, Genesis 19.33. It's a very unpleasant story where they're getting their father wasted and then having their way with him. And you're thinking, <laughs> Michael, you know, granted this is in the Bible. Why are we talking about this at church? You know, you're supposed to, you know, under the rug with these types of stories. Um, but what's the point of it? Well, the point of it is this. And look at the last two verses of this chapter, verse 37 and verse 38. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. And he's the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. And he is the father of the Ammonites of today. The two children that are spawned from this sick, sinful, drunken incest are these two nations that are now oppressing Israel, that are ruling over Israel, that are putting to bondage the nation of Israel. And the last one, the Amalekites, you won't be introduced to them until Genesis chapter 25, but, but you know the story, they're born of Esau. And you know who Esau is. He's, he's the brother of Jacob that sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. I mean, that's, that's how little he valued the Lord and, and being uh, one of promise with the Lord. He couldn't care less about it. He traded it for stew. And all three of these nations have their roots in carnality. And figuratively speaking, they represent to us the flesh. 
And you can trace this throughout scripture. So often, these three nations are shown to be this fleshy portion and oppressive figure in the nation of Israel. And, 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 and this will all come together later. But we can, we can easily ask the question now, what does the flesh want? And the answer is simple. Right? And it's pictured in Eglon that all the flesh wants is to be fed. That's all your flesh ever wants. Just in every way, every day, feed me, satisfy me, give me what I want, when I want. And then and it's, and it's always got to have its way and it won't quiet down, it won't settle down, it won't fall in line, it will never take the back seat. It's always screaming out to you, calling out to you, just feed me. Give me what I want. Satisfy me. And we live to serve it. And if you constantly give into it, you find yourselves like Eglon. A very fat man, 40 feet, roundabout, filled to the brim with sin, living his life to satisfy his flesh. And in verse 14, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And when you constantly give in to the demands of the flesh, you find yourself a slave to the flesh. And our flesh manifests its demands in many different ways, right? They're not all the same. Some people, their, their flesh is, is very literally calling out for food all the time. That would be my flesh, right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, so often I'm driving and I'm like, Jack in the Box tacos. That sounds fantastic, you know? And, and so, and so my flesh is calling out to me and it's saying, feed me. But, but maybe it's more subtle for you. And maybe jack-in-the-box tacos aren't what satisfy you. Maybe it's money that your flesh is constantly calling out for. And in context of what we talked about last week, Baal was the god of this nation. And it was personal wealth that, that was calling out to them. And it was personal wealth that drew them in. And, and it was to satisfy that desire of their flesh that they would seek after this god. We also know that there was Astrid that was God of this nation, and that was the God of love. And for so many people, it's love that's calling out for them, and maybe for, for, for us, it's simply self that's calling out to us. And it's certainly the battle cry of the world we live in today. No, just to look out for myself, just to take care of myself, and I don't care about anybody else but myself. Just give me what I want right now. You step over people to get it. This is flesh, and this is what we, and then and, and this is what we find ourselves in bondage to tonight. And the sad thing about a study such as this, when we consider the flesh, is, is that I find all too often, uh, we sit in sermons like this and we can kind of wipe our heads and say, well, because, uh, it wasn't that specific because nothing was pinpointed for me because nothing called out directly to me. Well, then great. I can walk out of here and I can fully satisfy myself and say, well, well, he never talked about me tonight. Maybe next week he'll get to me. 
And I've had people come up to me after messages and say just that. A couple of months ago, someone came up to me and they said, right after a message, they said, well, you know, that was great. But you didn't touch on anything I'm struggling with. Maybe next week. And you know what I thought? I thought, you're wrong! Because I know you! Just like I know myself! And we don't have one thing wrong with us. We got a whole bag of chaff wrong with us, my friends. We got all kinds of issues that we can touch on here when we're considering the flesh. And each one of us has something to deal with tonight. And, and, and your flesh, just like my flesh, is guided by a king. There's someone in charge of it. And it's not Eglon sitting on the throne of your life. It's your heart. It's my heart. And you know something about your heart and my heart? It's a desperately wicked liar. Right? It's a great message. Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? I mean, we, all, we leave messages that talk about our flesh and the problem that we all have with our flesh, and we think, ah, you're fine. That wasn't about you. I could think of a few people that was about. Not about this guy. This guy's okay. It's because we're listening to our heart. And our heart is an evil liar. And what we should do with our heart is exactly what David did with his heart. And you see that in Psalm 139, verse 23. Psalm 139.23, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Because apparently I can't. Maybe everybody else in the room can. And sometimes they very generously point out to me those things that are in my heart that I have no idea about. But you know who can definitely know your heart? And who doesn't have corrupt motives in pointing out your heart? Is the God that created your heart. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's an offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah, God has promised that he'll do exactly this when we come to him honestly and in humility. He'll deliver us from this enemy. And this is what we see in verse 15. That again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Ehud, the Benjaminite. Now, although Benjamin means son of my right hand, he was a left-handed man. Stories full of contradictions. <laughs> but it's worth noting down because in the culture, left-handed people were viewed as being under a curse. You know, the left hand was the defiled hand. It was the hand uh, that you would use to clean up with after you went to the bathroom. I know that's gross. I can tell by your face. You're like, why did that have to be in the study? <laughs> I don't know. No, I do know. Um, and this isn't really an, an ancient opinion either. Up until recently, the official opinion of the Roman Catholic Church 
concerning left-handed people was that they were under the influence of Satan themselves. I mean, this is this is a, a tradition that is carried over in, into our uh, into our Christianity to a degree. And, and so here we have Ehud, and all of his life, he's been told that he's cursed, that he's defiled, that he's useless and dirty. And this is the man that God raises up to be the deliverer. You know, and we begin to see a pattern here in the type of people that God chooses. God chooses first the any man, and then God chooses the outsider. And we put so much stock in personality traits that we deem useful to God. This is why I love things like the Strength Finder that we're doing on Saturday. Because it, it dispels the myth that only a handful of people are any use to God. And, and But this is the way that we so often think. We think, well, that guy. Well, no, if God could get a hold of his heart, oh, then he could do something great for the world. No, God isn't, God isn't looking for one type of person. You can be an any man. You can be an outsider. All God's looking for is someone that simply says, this is who I am, and this is what I've got. And here I am. Use me. And God could do great things in and through that person. This is Ehud, a man used greatly by God. And we continue in verse 16. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. See, I didn't lie, it's in there. He's a very fat man. Now, uh, you'll see the specifics for this, uh, the specific reason for this later. But it's worth noting down that in the entire book of Judges, this is the only fashioned weapon. Every other weapon you'll see in the book of Judges is, is a tool or instrument that was, that was laying about. Like you see, uh, uh, what are some of the things? Uh, farming tools, you see tent spikes. <clears throat> Samson is in the book, and, and you know that, well, he was just a, 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 an animal, and he used a jawbone to kill a bunch of people. So, I mean, these weren't fashioned weapons, but this one was. It was the only prepared weapon in the entire book, and it bears special significance to mark it down. But continuing in verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who carried it. And at the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet! And all of his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace. And he said, Oh, I love this. I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from the right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then e I know. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the door of the upper room behind him and locked 
and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked, and they said, he must be relieving himself. They thought he was just going to the bathroom in the upper room of the house. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. So they're hanging out, and they're like, well, he's taking a long time, and they start getting nervous. And, and, and But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord fallen on the floor, dead. And I'll leave the rest to your, re- to your reading, the war against Moab and the resulting uh, rest for 80 years, but, but, but consider the bravery and boldness of this man, Ehud, uh, this outsider, this, uh, the, the, this cursed individual, supposedly, that God uses as a great blessing to the nation. He assassinates the very fat man, Eglon. All right, the king of the flesh stabbed in his belly, and the and the fat closes around the the handle on the blade, and and it's a great verse, by the way, to to read in other translations and other versions. Uh, and I'll read just a couple uh, to you because they're graphic and delightful. The New Living Translation it says that upon the blow of the blade, the king's bowels emptied out. This is in the Bible, and it's very graphic. Uh, the New King James Version says that his entrails came out. That's, that's, that's del- delightfully picturesque. Uh, but my favorite, and the one that captures my imagination the most, is the King James Version. The King James Version says that after Ehud plunged the double-edged sword into Eglon, the dirt came out, out of him. And, and I love this. Uh, th- th- it was a few years ago that I started studying the book of Judges, and I'd never read it before. And I came upon this this study, and it was my first semester at Bible college. And when we got there, they, they told us that uh, I couldn't use my NIV. Uh, they, they told me specifically, because I was taking Greek, and we could only use the King James Version, because it, it synced up with the Strong's Concordance and all those other things. And and so I, I had to be reading uh, that version. I was reading it, and I came upon this this verse, and and... and it all started coming together for me. And it became a wonderful picture to me. Now, David Guzik said, no victory lasts forever, and every victory needs to be maintained. And here's how we do that. It's the very word of God. The word of God that is sharper than Ehud's sword. It cuts through the flesh. It cuts through the fat. And it expels the dirt. That's what the word does. And that's why it's worth noting down. Ehud's sword. The only prepared weapon in the book because it's the only prepared weapon for the saints. And did you catch it? Did you notice it? It's a double-edged sword. What a wonderful picture of Scripture and what Scripture does for us in our lives when it's applied to us in our flesh. Now, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges 
the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The only prepared weapon for the saints. Ephesians chapter 6. What does it say? It says it's the sword of the Spirit. And it's the instrument used by the Spirit to do the work of cutting away the flesh in our lives and expelling the dirt in our hearts. And I fell in love with this story because it became to me a beautiful picture that had with it a powerful principle that when the sword goes in, the dirt comes out. And as the scriptures go into me, the dirt comes out of me. It'll cut through the flesh in me. I can't open it up without being cut by it. And Ehud couldn't take it out without cutting flesh with it. It's the purpose of it. It's what it was designed for. It's what it's good for. This is the wonderful picture here hidden away in the scripture. That this is the weapon that can slay the enemy in me. And I've noticed that so often when the scriptures are distant from me, when I go through those times when I'm not often in it, when I'm not meditating upon it, that flesh so easily rises up in me. And it's constantly crying out in me, just feed me and give me what I want. And, it, and it's easy. It's easy to let that enslave me and carry me away into bondage. And I can find myself trapped under the oppression of myself and my flesh. But when I come back to the scriptures and plunge them into my heart as this prepared weapon of Ehud, the dirt comes out of me so easily. It's what it was meant to do. This is what we all can do to purge ourselves from the flesh that rules over us. And as we'll see with these judges, find rest for our weary soul. It's what the nation of Israel had, and it's what we can have. You know, this message was, uh, <laughs> here's a little insight into my uh, obsessive compulsive life. This message was, was 12 pages. And, and I cut it down to six. And one of the things that I cut out of the message, I'd actually like to end with. You know, when you read about these judges, and maybe this is only for a few of you, but whenever I read about these judges, I always think of what the rest of their life looked like. 
you know, you, you hear about these men, and it seems that their whole life amounted to one day that appears in Scripture, or one battle that appears in Scripture. And you think about the span of their lives and what it all accumulated to, what it all boiled down to. And you think, well, here's a man like Nathaniel. And he served the Lord, he fought for the Lord, and, 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 and the enemy was given over to him, and there was peace in the nation. And here's a man like Ehud. And he served the Lord, and he fought for the Lord, and he provides for us a beautiful picture of sanctification in our own lives. He prepared this double-edged sword. It's almost as if it's prophetic in light of Hebrews chapter 4. But what were the rest of his days like? And, and as I sat before the chapter this week, I began to consider the question. Well, did he become a priest? Well, he couldn't have become a priest. Right? They weren't born of the right tribe. So these great men, despite their greatness, could have never been a priest. Well, the, these men, they were, they were great men. They were recognized by the nation. So maybe they became kings. But you know and I know the story of Scripture and Israel wouldn't have a king for 300 years, so they never became kings. Well, here's a man, a great man. Maybe he was a tribal leader. Well, maybe that's true, but the Scripture doesn't say. So what can you say became of any of these men? And all you can say with any degree of certainty is here were, were two men that during their lifetimes, they brought peace to everybody around them. And there was rest in the nation because of them. And it's a wonderful thing to consider that you don't have to be a priest or a king. You don't have to be a great person of influence to leave a lasting legacy that impacts so many that these men and be them an outcast or an any man, be them an Athaniel or an, or an Ehud, had a lasting legacy of peace to the people around them and rest for the nation. Know that we would all be used by God for his glory to impact people in such a way. Because surely there are those all around us, just as there were back in this day, those that are in slavery, those that are in bondage to the enemy. And we can be the person that comes alongside of them, brings freedom to them, and rest falls upon them. Amen. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this text that we have today. Lord, I love the picture of it and how powerful and personal it is to me. Lord, thank you for it, that, that we can see that it's in your word, applied to our heart, that we're purged from the dirt in our lives. I pray that you would do that for each and every one of us. Lord, that even as your word has gone out tonight, that it would go into our heart and that every 
wicked, filthy, fleshy thing in us would come pouring out of us. And Lord, that we would be before you exposed, made right with you. Leave this place walking more closely alongside of you. I pray, Lord, for those Lord, those like myself that have this image of the type of person that you used and will use and, well, we're not like that. We don't fit that. Lord, that we would leave that here. And see, Lord, that that we can live a simple life, a normal life, that we don't have to have a position of spiritual significance per se. But we can live a life of spiritual significance that we can bring rest to those around us. And we can be used by you, Lord, for your glory, equipped by your spirit completely. And so, Father, I praise you. I pray all of this in your name. Amen. Amen.